Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. him in prison and, and this is what we need to understand so true david brock and some of these organizations have already raised tens of millions of dollars for an impeachment process then they want jail to the chief they need to understand that this is a war this is we are so far beyond normal politics sean we are in a very dangerous moment and while president trump is a very strong leader and a man of strong constitution he was able to survive all of this during the campaign and get elected president. When you are president and you are faced with the kind of monolithic opposition you are talking about, plus a federal bureaucracy that is completely out to undermine him every day, the intelligence community that is engaged in some of this as well that we have heard, I hope to God that he is strong enough to withstand this. They are out oh, to I destroy him because if he succeeds, the country changes for the good and they must not allow that to happen. Hey guys, I'm Monica Crowley and this is the Monica Crowley Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me as we begin to close out another week. Hi from CPAC. This is your go-to for hot liberty, a safe space for all of us thought criminals, independent thinkers, and happy warriors. On social media, Instagram at Monica Crowley underscore, and on Twitter and True Social at Monica Crowley, also by email at Monica Crowley Podcast at gmail.com. All right, we've got a big week of shows coming up next week. We're working on some major stuff, so nothing I can confirm yet, but you're not going to want to miss a second of it. All right, today I want to do a deep dive into one of the most important issues of our time, and that, of course, is race. Race is the perpetual issue in America, and I want to come at it from a different angle. Because race, along with everything else, has been weaponized by the communist left now for decades, decades, because the communist left knows that race is our Achilles heel in this country. It's the original sin of America. And the beauty of America is that we are a self-correcting country. So when we go down bad roads, immoral roads, illegal roads, we throughout our history have self-corrected. And that is certainly true for race. Is it 100% solved? No, because human nature is fallible. There is not a single perfect person on this earth. That means that no issue is truly 100% solvable when it comes to human relations and what the human heart believes, what the human brain believes, etc. So obviously, this is a very complex issue. But what happened over the last several decades when the communists left really began to grab a stranglehold over this country to, with the ultimate objective to, uh, in the words of Obama, fundamentally transform the nation, they realized that in order to do it really effectively, go after the weakest link, go after the Achilles heel of the country. And that, of course, is race, because it is, like I said, a complicated issue, but it's also a very emotional issue and very difficult to debate and argue because it is so sensitive. So the left knew that, and they grabbed a hold of it and weaponized it. And so today, what I want to do is have a really important conversation about the weaponization of race with someone who has now been on both sides or all sides of this issue. You know, I have been so looking forward to this conversation for a while because it's going to hit on some very important social and cultural issues, and we're going to get a very unique perspective on them from a truly independent-minded person who is not afraid to think for himself. And in this day and age, it takes a lot of courage to think for yourself and then be willing to speak publicly about what you believe. Our next guest is one of those rare people. Mark Fisher is a co-founder of Black Lives Matter Rhode Island and a founder of BLM Incorporated, and he joins us now. Mark, welcome. 
It's a pleasure to be here with you, Monica. Thank you. Well, it's such a pleasure to have you with us, and I'm so glad to have you here so we can have this kind of fulsome and necessary conversation. People do not talk to each other anymore, or they only talk to an echo chamber. And the kind of conversation I think we're going to have today is is a vitally important one, and I'd like to see more of it. So that's why I wanted to do it on this show. And I have so much that I want to cover with you because we're talking about very deep and complicated uh, cultural and social issues and racial issues as well. So let's start, I guess, Mark, at the beginning. Um, You know, when I was thinking about how I wanted to kind of structure this talk with you, I went back and looked at the beginnings of Black Lives Matter. And BLM began in 2013 after the death of Trayvon Martin. How did you, because the rest of us, I guess, heard about it all at the same time. How did you first hear about the organization and what, what was it about it that made you want to get involved? Well, you're right. It started in about 2013 after the death of Trayvon Martin. And, um, you know, it, it didn't gain the national or global attention that it has now until uh, 2020 and the death of George Floyd. So I was aware of it. Um, but at the same time, I had, you know, my own life and career that I was working on, things going on at the same time, aware, very aware of the, the, the volatility socially. Um, that we were experiencing, the, the race relations and, you know, the tension. And, I, you know, I was aware and it was a problem with me. I think all of us as Americans, we carried that with us and we knew that just something wasn't right. We just knew it. Uh, we kind of didn't know what to do about it, but we knew something wasn't right. And, um, you know, for the next seven years up until 2020, you know, I just, you know, we all lived our lives. And then when we saw what happened on TV, with George Floyd, you know, that was enough for us to take a step back and look at ourselves in the mirror, take a good look at ourselves. And I don't think any of us liked what we saw. Um, it was hard to process it, digest it, figure it out, explain it. And um, there was so many components to it. But we know we didn't like the end result. That We didn't like that. And... Um, after that happened, me and some like-minded activists in my state got together and we decided we were going to form our organization, Black Lives Matter Rhode Island. And we were very, um, I myself was, was very traumatized by that incident. And we were very um, determined and, and focused on making change permanent, you know, you know, uh, long-lasting, far-reaching change. You know, what it took, even if it costed my life, that's where I was mentally. And when you say change, what did you hope to accomplish? What did you think BLM could accomplish? Was it reforms in policing? Was it societal change in some way? Like, what specifically did you have in mind? Well, personally, because we know that um, Black Lives Matter during that time, it reached every corner of the country. Every state had a chapter globally. There were chapters all over the world. Japan had a BLM, Australia, France, Germany, England. Um, so we knew that it was something that was um, it was prevalent. It was ubiquitous. It was, you know, a collective rage and anger at, you know, what was happening to black people. And um, we knew something had to be done. And so myself and my organization in Rhode Island, you know, we stood up at the same time <clears throat> And personally, what I said to myself, my motivation, my driving uh, agenda was, I'm going to change the narrative. This is this was to to this day. This is what what um, gets me out of bed. This is what motivates me because I was tired of being defined by the media, being defined by my neighbor, being defined by the newspaper, being defined by you know anybody and everybody who had an opinion about me, but myself. I know myself better than anybody. So if anybody's going to be defining me, you know, it should be me. And so I decided that um, I was going to reclaim my narrative back and and define myself. And and I'm going to tell you the truth, Monica. I said to myself, once um, we established this platform and we started gaining momentum, I said to myself, and this is the first time I'm sharing this with anybody, I'm going to change this narrative about myself and my people, whether I have to lie, cheat, kill, and steal to do it. 
I don't care if I have to overpromise and underdeliver. I'm going to create my own narrative. Nobody's going to define me. Nobody's going to create the narrative for me. The newspaper is definitely not going to do it. The media is not going to do it. I'm not going to allow others to do it anymore. I'm going to do it. I'm going to take responsibility for how I'm perceived in the world that I live in. And did you think then, Mark, at the time, because what you just laid out is a very individualist view, right? Nobody is going to define me but me. I control my narrative. I control my perception in the world. I control who I am and what I'm going to do. But how does that square with joining with an organization that was based on collective action, Right. So in other words, when you join any kind of organization, you have to subsume yourself a little bit to the overall mission of the organization. Now, you co-founded Black Lives Matter in Rhode Island. So to some extent, you were in, in control of that piece of BLM. But BLM was a much bigger kind of organization. As you say, it was global, um, you know, at some point. So how did you square that where you were trying to find yourself, define yourself, individualistically, but you were also part of this massive organization and movement. Well, it's very simple when you get to the heart of it. And it's the slogan that causes so much controversy that defined an era. And it's Black Lives Matter. It's just this will outlive me. This will outlive my family. It's just like the civil rights era did, Um, you know, this movement. And so everybody had their own specific, you know, individual reasons for joining the movement but we we all knew what it was about it was about enforcing the notion and confirming the notion that all men are created equal under god with inalienable rights not given by the country not given by any uh institution or government but by god and so um black lives matter and i got pushback when you know the people who formed you know who i formed the organization with obviously i said we all had our own reasons, but it all came down to the fact that we didn't like how black people were being treated um, nationally, globally. And, I, and I, always, I always take a chance to put in this caveat that I understand that a lot of the um, situation that black people in ha- has a lot to do with our, ourselves and our role and, and, and how we're perceived on a national and global stage. And I, I don't shy away from that. I don't try to absolve our, ourselves from that. I understand that. But you know, now we're trying to change that. And, and that's not a crime and that's not a sin to try to uh, get that respect and, and uh, nationally and globally and take ourselves uh, very seriously on, this, on a national stage. It's not it's not wrong. Let's get into some tough questions, um, because this is why you're here. Um, the first tough question that I have for you is the basis for Black Lives Matter um, were you or are you aware of the Marxist origins of this organization, the Marxist support for the organization in terms of the money and the leadership? Were you aware of any of that? And are you aware now? Well, you know, b- black people are not a monolith and the movement is not a monolith either. There's different tenants moving parts to this movement. Like I said, that is going to outlive me and everybody that's alive today. Um just like the civil rights era did and the gains in that era. Um, so there are Marxist um, components to it. But like I said, those are just like, you know, the, the co-founders of the quote unquote movement were uh, three lesbian women. So but that doesn't speak for all black people. Just you, you mean you're you're not a lesbian woman, Mark? What <laughs> <laughs> no, gave it away? <laughs> well, but but you're right. I mean, three lesbian women, but they've all come forward, including the the, the real leader, Patrice Cullors. She ca- has come out and says, I am, quote, a trained Marxist. So when the leadership is Marxist, certainly the rank and file, not all of them have to be, and, and they've joined for all kinds of reasons. But when the leadership says that they are Marxist or that they're following a Marxist agenda to divide and conquer the country, what do you think about that? Well, when you talk about leadership, this is it's important to understand. And this is a lot of the misunderstanding is that Black Lives Matter is a decentralized organization. It's an, it, and what I think is to its benefit. There is no one person that you can target. There's no one city or state or office or organization. 
you can target because, like I said, it's collective. It was ubiquitous, raging anger against the machine, and 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 we, it was it was indigenous, it was local minded, and um, it was something that was you know never seen before on that scale, and so um, just like you know, obviously they don't speak for me. I don't speak from many tenants and components of the movement, quote unquote, as opposed to the organization. You talk about the organization, they started it and they're the co-founders. And I would never throw any black people under the bus, least of all the co-founders of the movement, because now I'll call people out, but I'm not going to throw them under the bus because we've been doing that for so long that we have no respect. We don't even respect one another. So, um, I'm going to change that narrative as well. And, um, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, go ahead. Finish your thought. Yeah, no. So so um, just like <clears throat> they don't speak for me, I'm sure I don't speak for them. Well, I know you probably don't <laughs> speak for them. Okay, and we're, we're going to get into that in a second. I'm sure they're none too pleased <laughs> with your independent thinking. But I just, I wonder, because having been a student of Marxism and communism my entire life, um, you know, when Karl Marx wrote the Communist Manifesto, communism was originally an economic theory that the capitalists were exploiting the working class and therefore workers of the world unite and come together and overthrow the capitalist system, institute communism. But the original division was between the workers and those who controlled the means of production. Now, you know, over time, over the last century, communists have gotten a lot smarter and realized, yeah, that's an important division. But particularly in America, the more emotional and important division to exploit is the racial one. And so communists have really gotten in there in order to divide and conquer all of us by keeping black versus white going, because it's a far more emotional issue than, say, you know, Jeff Bezos versus you know, your local garbage man kind of thing. In America, that doesn't really wash, but what does wash is exploiting the racial divide. And I just wonder if BLM originating as as a Marxist organization, that they have used that lever. The communists have used that lever to divide the society and keep us at each other's throats. Um, And that it's just a tool, like in other words, like the George Floyd or the Trayvon Martin deaths, that they are just pretexts for a much bigger thing that is only partly related to race. Like the racial issues are just being used to that end. What do you say? Well, I say it's just like the gun or the knife that we use at Thanksgiving dinner. It's not evil, but just the person who is wielding it can be deemed evil or not. And when you talk about um, the the race card that's always played, the the same the, the same narrative that gives this movement so much teeth is the same basis that they were able to um, subvert the movement with, with, with Marxism. Because initially it wasn't about that. It was about Trayvon Martin. And so when you think about um, how it's used, obviously, I'm not a Marxist. I've said it many times. I've been quoted and it's documented that I'm pro-capitalist, I'm pro-entrepreneurial fundamental American values at the core pro-faith, pro-family, pro-education. So these things are things that black people in this country yearn for. Mm -hmm. But the race card is something that is going to always be there because, and I've said this before, the powers that be know how to use it to their benefit and our detriment. And I say the classic example, case and point, is the Civil War. How was it that a government was able to convince a c- entire army to pick up a rifle and kill their brother in the name of slavery and none of them owned a slave? Mm-hmm. That's how powerful and potent propaganda is. You are 100 uh, percent right about the power of propaganda. And, you know, we do have serious race issues in this country, and that's why I wanted to have you here and air some of them out. And I just, 
I, I kind of look at BLM as this leftist Marxist organization that is is militating in the opposite direction from the kind of conversation you and I are having right now because their agenda is different. And it's just exploiting and using these situations or the racial divide, deepening it, you know, exploiting it. And that's what I worry about. The, the BLM leadership, you're exactly right. You know, no organization is its leadership entirely. But when they set the tone at the top, you know, this Patrice Cullors, who is one of the founders, it's now come out, Mark, that, you know, she and others have enriched themselves at the cost of the movement, lining their own pockets. It's buying mansions, multi-million dollar mansions, claiming that they need these palatial estates for their security or their lifestyle. What's your response to that? I mean, are you surprised to hear about this kind of corruption in BLM? No, because there's evil everywhere. There's evil in the government. There's evil in our communities. There's evil maybe even in our homes. You got that right. You know, so I don't put it past anyone to manipulate, to take advantage of or you know uh to use and abuse you know even our own government i have disdain for i, I severely lack trust for the government and um i feel like they're you know out to get us um they don't have our best interests at heart it's us against them i heard you say i was i was watching one of your um, interviews and it's the ruling class mm-hmm. that we have to watch out for um, not each other. My neighbor has no power over me. I don't, you know, that's the narrative that's created. They can't put me in prison. They can't take away my livelihood, pull up on my lawn with a tank in the middle of the night with a 50 cal shotgun, you know, you know, attached to it. They can't, you know, uh, hand out, you know, sentences to me like Halloween candy. You know, you get a sentence, you get a sentence, you get you get 20, you get 20. My neighbor doesn't have that kind of power over me to break up my family and, and destroy my name and my life. The government does, though. Yep. Yep, and they are. And and they they have the overwhelming force. The, the government has a monopoly on force, whether it's the Department of Justice, the FBI, uh, you know, your local police department. Whatever entity it is, the government has an overwhelming monopoly on force. That's why I say to everybody, never give up your guns, because that Second Amendment is the only thing standing between you and total tyranny. Absolutely. Absolutely. Are you a supporter of the Second Amendment? Of course. (laughs) I love that. Yes. Once Once we lose that, right? Listen, I'm a staunch supporter of the Constitution, you know, and... I feel like, you know, um, the, the, the America's the, the, the greatest country in the history of the world. We're beyond blessed. And in America is as, is as strong as its weakest link. And the only people who can destroy America is America. Like, mm-hmm. we, we have to understand. <laughs> Once we calm down and stop being so restless, you know, and, 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 and work together, improve, you know, and this is why I have such disdain for, for Joe Biden, because he's sending you know, ungodly amounts of money overseas. And it's like we got an economic plight in all the marginalized communities all over this country like you wouldn't believe. Um, We're dealing with unprecedented, you know, um, illegal immigration. And I don't think anybody is okay with that. We got homelessness. We got poverty. We got mental health crisis. Our schools suck. They're abysmal. Our neighborhoods are a war zone. And this guy acts like he's in another world. And he picks this vice president who is absolutely just as bad as he is, if not worse, out of all the people he could have picked. Of course he picked her because they're two peas in a pod. What does that show you? It shows you his intent. Yeah, you're so right. And I I do want to tackle Biden and Harris and and Trump. But before we let go of BLM, um, one final question for you about it. You mentioned George Floyd and how that really got you motivated to to create BLM in Rhode Island and get more involved. And of course, BLM 
took off again in the summer of 2020 after the Floyd uh, death. And we were all at the time showed that horrifying cell phone footage of the Minneapolis police officer, Derek Chauvin, leaning on George Floyd's neck. Um, He's crying out. You've got other cops milling around. Um, and of course, you know, that, that just set the country on a completely different trajectory, right? Where you had BLM uh, marching in the streets, you had a lot of violence, you had a lot of burning down of government buildings, you know, courthouses, police stations, not just in Minneapolis, but then it spread um, all across the country. But now, Mark, we are three years after, and we're getting an, an a presidential election later, um, and we're seeing the actual police reports and the official autopsy uh, report, which all indicate that George Floyd was not, in fact, murdered by Derek Chauvin, but he resisted arrest, and he, in fact, died of a massive fentanyl overdose. So the entire George Floyd narrative was made up to advance a political narrative during an election year, and it was a lie. Now, that's not excusing bad behavior on the part of individual cops, but that specific case literally burned down the country and influenced a presidential election. And now, all these years later, we're getting the truth, and it looks like the narrative was completely false. What's your reaction to all of this? My reaction is you could pick your choice, of incidents that could have been the, the, the you know the spark that that you know or the you know lit the, the keg <laughs> you know or caused you know what happened in 2020. I don't know why it happened to be that one. Only God knows. Um, it could have been Trayvon Martin. It could have been Tamir Rice. It could have been Breonna Taylor. Who knows? But it was George Floyd. Um, and I'm not I'm not here to, you know, have a pity party. I'm not I'm, I'm definitely not a victim. <laughs> you know, uh, I'm blessed and highly favored, born blessed, come from a family of pastors, loved by my mother, my wife, my children, my community, um, have support, educated, well-spoken background in theology. So I'm definitely not out here claiming victim. But what I'm saying is, uh, like you said, it doesn't excuse bad behavior whether we find out that it was all, you know, false or not, a false narrative or not. I believe that something was destined to happen because, like I said, ever since it started in 2013, we all knew something was wrong. And we knew, we just, we we knew we didn't know how to fix it. And that's what I said. Uh, and I told, you know, somebody uh, recently, this is um, why I'm so, like, heartened. And not at the same time, I'm as heartened as I am surprised that so many from the, the January 6th community, you know, um, are um, relating to, to the plight of black people. And, and as we, you know, continue to build these the bonds and, and coalitions, um, as I build, we build these coalition of patriots, I'm like, okay, I had no idea that, you know, they were as desperate as me and others in my community to improve race relations. And it was just... Nobody knows how. We just didn't know how to do it. But they're like, you know, so accepting and embracing and, and loving of me. And it's like blowing my mind. And this is not only am I taking this on, but I'm also evolving in the process. I'm becoming a different person. Mm-hmm. And I'm saying to myself, there's more that we have in common than we don't. To the degree, I would have never even suspected like it's insane. They're praying people, God fearing people, family loving people, just like we are. Afraid, you know, of you know, a oppressive militarized government in you know, you know, in our neighborhoods and in our cities and can and ruling our lives and a ruling class that is, you know, has no checks and boundaries and that's out of control and all of these things, you know, they, they want freedom and live life and liberty and a pursuit of happiness and there's no difference in in what we want, what we claim, and what we represent. We're all Americans, and it's like you know, I'm just blown away at the people in that community who are reaching out to me and who are continuing to reach out to me and 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 wishing me well and and, and praying for me and covering me. 
Mark, you know, this is an absolutely fascinating and important conversation. Please hang tight. We've got to hit a quick break, but we have so much more coming up straight ahead. The erosion of our food supply is a pressing concern in today's world. The prevalence of diseases and the number of Americans getting sick continues to rise because of the practices associated with commercial farming, the use of fertilizers, chemical sprays, and the proliferation of bioengineered foods. We deserve better. We deserve food that will nourish our bodies, not break them down. And Freedom Farms believes that too. Straight from beautiful upstate New York, Freedom Farms, founded and operated by great American patriots, are leading the charge in restoring faith in food production by providing an alternative that is natural, healthy, and unadulterated. The farm raises grass-fed, grass-finished beef, pasture-raised pork, and free-range pastured chickens. But the best part about all of this is that all of their meats are 100% vaccine-free and hormone-free. And did I mention, you can even buy up to a whole cow and pig. Delicious and healthy meats processed at a small, family-owned butcher shop and delivered right to your front door. It's time we take control of our food supply. Check out Freedom Farms today by visiting wearefreedomfarms.com. And don't forget to use code MONICA25 for $25 off your first order. Wearefreedomfarms.com, code MONICA25 for $25 off your very first order. Check out my friends at Freedom Farms for the very best meat you will ever have, WeAreFreedomFarms.com, code MONICA25. Okay, we are back with one of the most important discussions that you will hear with Mark Fisher. You know, what you just laid out is what happens when Americans break free from the propaganda that they're being fed. And, and they begin to think for themselves and they start looking around at their communities, their neighbors, and they say exactly what you say, which is, hey, man, you know what the, the corrupt media has been telling me or what the corrupt government or the corrupt culture has been telling me about black versus white or whatever the division might be. You know, we don't really have those kinds of divisions. You know, when it comes to personal relationships, we are, we're all the same. You know, we all bleed red and we all want the same things for our family and for our country. But you've got some real maniacs who are evil and evil is real. And I don't know if you're a believer, but I certainly am. And this is a spiritual battle on top of everything else. And when you see it in those terms, you can't unsee it. And you realize that these dark forces are lying. They're deceiving people. They're engaged in deception to try to get you to hate your fellow American based on whatever, class, race, gender, it doesn't matter. But again, the, the divide and conquer strategy. And it is fundamentally evil because as human beings, we are social creatures and this country is a very good country. Does it mean we haven't made mistakes? Of course not. Every country makes mistakes. All leaders make mistakes. But overall, this country has had more self-corrective uh, history than any other nation on the face of the earth. We are a good, we're a great nation because we're a good people. And, uh, you know, the, the powers that be don't want us to recognize that mark. And they want us at each other's throats and divided because then it makes it easier for them to seize power and hold on to it and that's why they hate trump so bad right because he's here to destroy that whole narrative. yes he has he has and you you are before we get to trump i want to deal with the democrats first because what's fascinating mark and you are supporting trump which is blowing everybody's mind um but it shouldn't 
because independent thinkers who are smart, like you, see <laughs> the, the necessity for Trump. Um, but, you know, he is gaining a lot with African-American voters. Black voters, you know, bl- the black community loved Trump before he got into politics because he, it was an aspirational lifestyle, right? Like he had the cars and the buildings and the hot women and the bling and the whole thing, right? All of that good stuff. All of that good stuff. And then, of course, he ran and the Democrats got right into the black voters and said, hey, man, you can't like him. You got to stick with us. Um, and I want to delve into that more with you. But um, the propaganda. It, propaganda. Totally. Totally. Um, I got one in you. Um, But, you know, when you were looking at the recent polls, it shows that Trump now is scoring like 20, 22. I saw one poll that showed 29% of black voters. Do you think it's, it's economic? But do you also think a lot of black voters are like, oh my gosh, he is getting railroaded by the judicial system and the criminal justice system the way we do. And we, we appreciate what he's going through. We get it and we want to support him. Yes. I just think it's, it's a, it's a, it's a conflation of many things. It's that it's um, the fact that we are sick and tired of the democratic party. It's we see what Trump did for us when he was president. Black employment was at a historic low. Yeah. You know, and so people are like, okay, the jig is up. You know, black blacks are finally starting to wake up and walk away from Democrats. And and they, and, and I'm going to be honest with you, Donald Trump got charisma. <laughs> yes, he does. I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, you know. <laughs> I'm sorry if that doesn't sit well with people, but I, I like Donald Trump. Well, his policies, you know, and I was in the Trump administration at the Treasury Department for two years. Very, very blessed to have been there. And when you look at Trump's record as president in terms of supporting the black community, he delivered a strong economy, generating more wealth all around, including historically low unemployment for black Americans, along with rising wages for black Americans. He did criminal justice reform. He delivered unprecedented support for historically black colleges and universities. He started opportunity zones for minority and underserved communities to encourage investment and help them thrive economically. He did so much for black Americans and he never gets any credit. But do you think blacks are looking back on that and going wow that was pretty good well i think the media has a good, does a good job of of uh skewing the the reality um but the people like like i said black people are not a monolith you know um you know uh contrary to what joe biden thinks <laughs> joe biden thinks you know the hispanic communities they're a vibrant and diverse community with a lot of ideas but uh unlike black people with a few notable exceptions <laughs> you ain't black mark you, you're going to vote for Trump. You ain't black. Are you black? <laughs> let's let's get this straight right now. If you're having a hard time deciding between me and Trump, brother, then you like, I mean, come on. Like I, the depths of the, the, the stupidity. of <laughs> that. I mean, I know this guy's a gaffer. He's known for that. But, you know, eventually, you know, the Bible teaches us that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And you can, it's hard for this guy to hide who he really is and, you know, how he really feels. It's hard. It's hard for him to do it. He's tried. He's done a good job. He's, you know, he's walked the line, the tightrope. But um, people are waking up. They're seeing who he is. They're realizing who he is. They're realizing who the Democrats are. And um, they're like, nah, no thanks. <laughs> it's fascinating to watch. It's It's really fascinating. I mean, look. You know, what has Joe Biden ever done for the black community except, you know, spew a bunch of racist stuff or his boss? Yeah. That's that is exactly right. And then all, all of his like off the hand remarks about, you know, Obama back in the day. By the way, what did his boss, Barack Obama, do for the black community for that matter? Nothing. And, you know, I always say black I say Barack Obama did nothing but be black. He was, if anything, he was the first, um, and I don't mean this in a, in a negative way, but he was the first gay president. He did more for gays than he did for blacks. Uh, he was the first immigrant president, you know, but he did, he did nothing for black people. 
He didn't. You're exactly right. You know, when he was first running, he gave one speech, I think it was Father's Day, when he talked about the disintegration of the the black family and the need for uh, black Americans to have intact families with the father remaining present. What do you want to say about the breakdown of the black family and and what it's meant? Because I remember hearing Obama say that during the 2008 campaign and thinking, well, I disagree with him on literally everything else. But if he makes that a core part of his presidency, that's the one thing that everybody can kind of get around and support. And I would have been very supportive of it, as I know every other conservative would have too. But he dropped it as soon as he became president. You never heard that again. So talk to us a little bit about the breakdown of the black family, what it's meant for American culture and society. Well, it's, you know, the, the heart, you talk about the, the heart of a community is the family. So when you break down the family, the, you break down the whole community. And we know that communities form nations. Uh, you're only as strong as your weakest link. And so when you look at uh, the black community, that, that's America right now. Our fathers are in prison. Our fathers are out of work. They have no pathway opportunities. They have no uh, hope. They're all full of despair. Crime is, you know, out of control. They're all in jail, you know. Um, so it's like our neighborhoods are full of poverty. They're war zones. And so they look at <clears throat> these policies that Democrats implemented because we are historically Democrats. And there's not one thing that empowers the black man or the black family. So if you're a black man, if you're a young black man and you're in the inner city and you probably come from a single mother family, you have nowhere to look. You have nothing to model, no one to look up to. And so your, your plight, your plight is, in the, it's in the cards. It's you're a statistic. You're a number now, because chances are for you to make it through that line of fire are, are slim and none. And this is the deliberate intention of the Democratic Party. It's methodically introduced into our community these these policies that go and strike to the heart. They go against the the nuclear family and strike at the heart of the black family. These are these are deliberate policies. Mm -hmm. So that's what I think. I think that we need to leave the Democratic Party. That's what I think. Yes. Um, And I've been talking about this for a while. And it's a really profound and very disturbing point. When you look at the Democrat Party and its relationship with black Americans, certainly since the civil rights movement was fantastic and historically so, so important and morally the right thing to do. Um, But since then, since that moment when the Democrats got deep, because it used to be throughout history, from, from Abraham Lincoln and the emancipation of the slaves all the way through Martin Luther King Jr., Blacks were Republicans because they were entrepreneurial, um, obviously believed in freedom, individual liberty, and the rest of it. But as soon as the civil rights movement got going and then was over, the Democrats hijacked that and created enormous dependency in the black community, which then crushed the black community. And then they proceeded to propagandize blacks into thinking that what the Democrats were doing to them was taking care of them, that it was benevolent somehow, when in fact, it was absolutely destroying the black community, the black family, all in the name of getting blacks to vote for the Democrats as a permanent voting block. And you know what? It worked. It works. And that's Stockholm syndrome at its finest. Yes. And when you look at the, 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 the cyclical effect, it's so it's it's so, um, you know, um, terrible, it, you know, it's so nefarious, right? You 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 take the woman because before this, the black family was strong. It was at its strongest when we was going through the hardest times. Uh, these, like I said, that was the weakest link. But we were strong as a nation. You you move forward. The Democratic Party introduces these policies that split the family. 
In other words, they tell the woman, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take care of you. I'm going to uh, give you a check every month. I'm going to give you free housing. I'm going to pay all your bills. I'm going to give you free food, and I'm going to give you free money. All right? You don't have to worry about a thing. The only catch is the father of the child can't be around or you lose everything. Mm -hmm. He can't be anywhere on the premises. If he's found anywhere on the premises, you lose everything. So now she's like, well, screw that, brother. You know, in in, 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 in a nice, you know, (laughs) colloquial. uh, (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So what happens is now the government is raising these children. Daddy ain't around no more. Okay, because daddy can't be around. Mama can't afford to have daddy around, thanks to the Democrats. So, so now when he becomes of 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 uh, adulthood age of, of manhood, they're wondering, okay, now where's my child? Where was I, I? I clothed him, I fed him, I uh, housed him, I gave him allowances, I raised him. That's my child. He's mine. Now I'm coming back to get what's mine. So now the mother. She has no choice but to give the child back to daddy. So who's daddy? Well, we know about the preschool, the prison pipeline, right? That's who daddy is. That's who daddy was. That's who daddy has been. So now he goes out into the world and he gets roped up and he gets caught up. And I call it the revolving door. Once you get caught up into the system, you can't get out. And he's right where he belongs with his daddy. That's what the Democrats did to us. The Democratic Party has abused black Americans now for decades. And what they have done is take the black community and turned it into a permanent underclass in order to have them dependent on government, dependent on them, and therefore as a permanent voting block. To me, Mark, what the Democrats have done to the black community is a crime against humanity. Absolutely. Absolutely. I don't disagree with you. And this is why I'm so vocal about them. And it's all identity politics all the time in order to, again, divide and conquer us and keep us at each other's throats. This, this is going to take a lot to turn this around, Mark. How do you think we begin to do that? Conversations like this. It takes bold leaders with bold vision like you, like me, like Donald Trump, like people who are not afraid to go against the grain, to think for themselves to be ridiculed, to lead. That's what it's going to take because that's what we embody and that's, that, that's what we are going to um, exemplify because, you know, people, uh, uh, most people are followers. Um, it, it, you know, leaders are made, you know, they're forged in fire. And I, I always said, I said this at the very beginning of the movement, that God raises up uh, uh, just people through righteous causes. And, um, you know, this was a righteous cause. And so, but it's going to take leaders. It's going to take, because God is not going to come down from heaven and solve the race problem. He's not going to solve the class problem. He's not going to solve uh, the, the, the hate problem. He's going to say, okay, I gave you everything you needed to solve the problem. You have the power. It's in your hands. Now, you have to be the change that you want to see. Because that's how it's going to spread one person at a time. That's how we're going to change the community, that's how we're going to change the nation, and that's how we're going to change the world. Yes, and to ultimately get people to see beyond race, what MLK said, judge people on the content of their character, not on the color of their skin. This is what Donald Trump was trying to do, and it was one of many reasons why the left needed to destroy him and destroy him still, because he was actually bringing us all together and doing it in a very successful way. So you're... Yeah, please go ahead. No, he's still doing it. And this is what, so they hoping that he was like a blip on the radar in history because what he represents is so powerful. Um, it has, it's, it's, it's has the ability to change the world and definitely the country. And so, but, um, they were like, before he, before people started recognizing who he really was, they were hoping they could destroy him. But what it does, it, it what it did is it, it actually backfired. Yeah. Because he's become more popular now. The more they indict him, the more popular he becomes. That's right. They're turning him into a martyr. We recognize the persecution because it's so rampant and pervasive in our community. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You can't not see it. Yeah. This man, 
Why? Leave this man alone. I think a lot of people, especially in the black community, are seeing it that way, Mark. They're like, okay, he must have been doing something right for the system to be coming after him so hard. <laughs> right? Ironically. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's it's really, it's a, a wild, wild dynamic that the, the corrupt system, which is fundamentally evil, um, is trying to crush this man who was only trying to do good. And he did a lot of good for every American, but certainly for the black community. Um, okay, so are you going to be out there campaigning for President Trump? Do I need to talk to him about you, Mark, and, and tell him who you are and how you should be on board? Yes. <laughs> you got it. And a good word for me because I know you got weight. I know you got sway over there. And, and <laughs> <laughs> well, he should absolutely know who you are, and he should absolutely talk to you. And and I, call me. I, I, I will. I will. Um, would you be willing to campaign for him? Absolutely. It would be an honor. Fantastic. Well, that's just, it's fantastic. I mean, we need dramatic change. Um, We need independent thinkers like you. You're such an important voice. But if we're going to have any chance of turning this country around and bringing her back for all Americans, these are the kinds of conversations we need to have. And we need to have leaders, not just political leaders like Trump, but cultural leaders like you, Mark, in there trying to change the American culture, black community, entertainment, Hollywood, whatever it is. This is a huge heavy lift because the left has been in there for decades, but we have to start somewhere if we're going to turn this thing around. I agree. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you and I are now, you and I are fast friends now, Mark, right? I love it. We're BFFs. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Well, like I said, you are a great independent thinker and a very important voice. And I hope you'll you continue to stand up for what you believe and speak out. I definitely will. And you as well, okay? Oh, all, Well, always. Always. And I hope that you'll come back on this show in the new year so we can talk about the election. As soon as you invite me on, I will be on with bells. Oh, Well, I can't wait for that as well. Mark Fisher, you are an absolute gem, and the country is is lucky to have you. And, you know, when I said to the audience, we're going to have a co-founder of Black Lives Matter Rhode Island on (laughs) and and a founder of BLM Incorporated, everybody's like, huh? But now everybody can understand the value of you, the value of your independent thought, which is going to save the country, and the reason that I wanted to have this conversation. Amen to you too, Mark. God bless you, and we will have you back very soon, I promise. Looking forward to it. Me too. Before we let you go, Mark, where can everybody find you on social media and elsewhere? Mark Fisher Focus. You can um, email me at um, either markfisherfocus at gmail.com, or you can go to BLM Inc., and I have all blminc.org. All my um, information is on there as well. Oh, people are going to love emailing you at BLM. <laughs> Let me just say. Christian Focus is all my social media handles. BLM Inc. is the website. Fantastic. And I just want to tell everybody your last name is spelled F-I-S-H-E-R, Mark Fisher, markfisherfocus.com. Please go check him out. Support him however you can. He deserves all of our support. Mark, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Monica. It was a pleasure. Wow, guys, um, that was a really heavy conversation, but also a necessary and important one. So I appreciate you being here for it. And I hope that you will tell everybody you know about today's show, of course, because I want as many people to hear it as possible, but also about this show, the Monica Crowley podcast. Please tell your, your friends, family, colleagues, loved ones, acquaintances, people on the subway, uh, anybody about this show to spread the word, uh, because we want this show to grow and it is growing with your help. So thank you so much for that. Uh, all right. Thank you also for checking out our great sponsors and I want you to have a fantastic weekend and I will see you right back here next week. This episode of the Monica Crowley podcast was produced by Bayhockle Entertainment, LLC. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. 
Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.